as a writer, you should be connecting yourself with people that are better than you because that's the only way you're going to become a better writer. I see so many people who just sort of like surround themselves with people at the same sort of level or they're maybe the top of the heap. And if you're doing that, you'll never, you'll never be great. If you're not being challenged by other people, the people that, that, that are in your life, maybe you need to start thinking about other things. This is the Act One Podcast. Our guest today is screenwriter Scott Reynolds. I'm your host, James Duke. I spoke with Scott over Zoom back in April during the early days of the COVID-19 outbreak. Spoiler warning, we do discuss some of the shows Scott has written on, including Dexter and Jessica Jones. So if you haven't seen those shows, be warned, we do talk about some key story plot points. Scott Reynolds, thanks for joining us, man. It's good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you too, Jimmy Duke. You are uh, you are alive so far, surviving the craziness that is COVID nineteen. I don't know when this is gonna air, but most of the interviews so far have been in our our lockdown. So, how's your family yeah. doing? How's how's uh, how's everybody doing? Everybody's uh, you know everybody's cool. They're uh, my son is out front. He's in film school, so he's out front right now working on a script. Uh, in the shade uh audrey's making music in her room she's got like a little keyboard uh beat maker thing uh amy's doing great she's always keeping busy and then i'm i'm zooming in a room every day on a secret (laughs) showtime show so um and and that is what what is that like uh because i've talked to a couple of writers who are you know have shifted to the virtual writer's room is that has that been a challenge for a lot of you guys? Or is it just more the same old, same old, or what? Uh, we missed the boards. We missed mm. being able to, everybody focused on, you know, a writer's room is filled with like, you know, five, six, seven, eight giant uh, whiteboards. And we're able to write story on it and break it by character and go through and go back in a race and adjust. And uh, now we're doing it with uh, the, it's like a, the program called, I think it's called the writer's room or something like that. Okay. Um, and it's pretty cool. You know, it's like, it's like cards, but in order to zoom out into seeing like a whole episode, everything's so small and packed in and, you know, uh, so that part, that part's challenging, but we sort of would thank God for that program. Cause uh, I don't know how we do it. Otherwise we tried doing it on, on a word doc at first. And that was crazy. Um, and uh, it, it definitely makes you more focused, you know, like we fart around in the writer's room a lot. It's a lot yeah. of chasing silly, stupid stuff and talking about, yeah. did you see what Trump did? Who's taking bleach today? Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, and so there's a little bit less of that because we know our time is, you know, we, we zoom from like 10 to 1230 and then uh, 1.30 to we try to end around four. Sometimes we go a little later because we make sure that we don't, we, we take our clocks down in the corner of our computer. You're not just staring. Oh, it's been three, three, three minutes. <laughs> uh, and so sometimes, you know, someone suddenly goes, Oh man, it's, it's four twenty. It's time to not be zooming. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's good. It, it makes you more, it honestly makes you more tired. 
Uh, oh, I can imagine. I'm sure. And the eye strain of just staring at a stupid screen that that long, you know. Yeah, but it's also interesting, like seeing other people's lives. Like, I've also uh, like I had a couple general meetings, and you know, people like Warner Brothers, or whatever, like pitching IP or whatever. But you get to see executives in there. Like, there's this one executive <laughs> over at like Vertigo or, or DC, uh, uh, DC. Vertigo's no more, I guess. Yeah, so DC Comics, whatever, DC TV, whatever. Um, and he was in his bathroom because he's got a four-year-old and a six-year-old and a, and a seven-year-old. Oh, my And gosh. so he has to, there's no privacy. The only place he has <laughs> is private is his bathroom. So he puts out, you know, a cool Martha's Vineyard <laughs> background. <laughs> but there's a strange echo because it's his bathroom. And, uh, and then I just think about, like, his, just the weirdness of his time. Like, so his kids are home from school and dad is always in the bathroom talking to himself <laughs> for hours at a time. <laughs> so that's making weird yeah. noises for the bathroom that aren't usual noises. <laughs> yeah. He's just always talking. Yeah. Cause your kids are, your kids are high school, college and my kids are, are younger and <clears throat> the, I don't know how I don't know how single parents are doing it right now. I, I don't like I, I, I it's hard enough, and but I don't a single single parents have a, there's a special place in God's God's heart for them because I we're not trained teachers, no. <laughs> and I no. teach and we're not trained teachers. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and and to do everything else and I just it, it is uh, it's it's been amazing how how all this has gone and, and the the and math. Like, oh, I, I don't geez. know math. Like, Aud I was trying to help Audrey with math, and it's like, it's a whole different way. I was yes. showing her my way of, like, carrying yeah. it over and... Yeah, the like, real what way. Are you doing? You're, the yeah. real way. That's right. yeah. <laughs> what are you doing, Dad? I'm doing math. No, you're not. What is that? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, with the, you know, with this writer room environment, do you think that, do you think as soon as this is lifted, everyone's going to go back to meeting again? Or do you think that this will kind of... Be, have you heard any scuttlebutt from your fellow cohorts that is things are things going to be like this a little longer in terms of like will people actually want to want to work this way in the future you think um i know all i can speak for is my room and we can't wait to get back into <laughs> your your room an actual no. space yeah. and, and also just because of the because like you're saying with the kid thing it's yeah. you know i'm both my dog uh yeah. <laughs> and, uh, life is happening all around you. That was like almost thank you. I don't know if you can hear that. <laughs> yes. uh, or your kid, you know, one of our writers, like the kid comes charging into the room and you have to deal with that. And you have yeah. to go grab your kid and yeah. take care of them. And My daughter, my, my daughter brings sure they're not drinking that poison. <laughs> <laughs> my daughter, well, you know, light cures everything, right? Uh, but uh, um, my, my, my daughter brings signs. So I'll be in the middle of oh, nice. something and all of a sudden she'll appear above my computer holding a sign, <laughs> you know. Can I eat yet, Dad? <laughs> yes, exactly. It's been, th it's been three hours. Can we have lunch now, please? Yes, you... I hope we get to go back. I hope. I hope. So I know you can't really talk about, you know, what you're working on now, right. but I'd love, I'd love to kind of hear from you a little bit about, I want to spend some time talking about Dexter. Okay. I, yeah. It's, yeah, but it's such a, you know, it was such a, for its time, it was such a groundbreaking show yeah. and such a great show. And I had the pleasure of, you know, watching it with you. And um, 
yeah, we would always get together. For people that don't know, we would, Scott and his wife and family would have people over and we would uh, watch it together and it was always a lot of fun. Purely selfish on my part because now <laughs> I get to watch it with an audience, you know, and I get to see what worked and what didn't. And, right, right. You know. Yeah, no, that's smart, actually, when you think about it. I, I, that first season was... Based on Mr. Lindsay's book. That was just bonkers. What was the, what was it, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the process of going from a book to kind of creating it and making it its own. Because you, got, you guys deviated after the first season and began to develop more of your own original concepts and stuff for these characters and following their own paths and stories you guys were developing. I'm just curious, what was that? What was that like? Was that a was did that happen organically, or was it a was it a specific choice that came from the network or came from the showrunner and said, "No, we're gonna we're gonna go do our own thing now." And and what was that like? Because the first season obviously was so successful both creatively and ratings wise yeah. and everything. It was great having a template, like having a map that we could that we could go down, um, that we could have, you know, Dexter looking Dexter with this grand mystery of who's this person contacting me that knows about my past that knows more about my past than I do, you know, um, uh, brother relationships are always fun to, to write about. Uh, those have been around for a long time. <laughs> um, so it, it was, it was great having that map. It was great also discovering, uh, it, it was great discovering new pathways for characters, you know, uh, finding out that, you know, like the brother being, I can't remember if it's in the book or not, but I think it wasn't uh, her, the brother being like a limb surgeon or, you know, a, a, a metal limb surgeon of uh, making fake limbs, uh, which fits completely into Dexter's mythology as he's right. his, his brother down this path of finding, of, uh, of connection, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah, so, uh, so, it was, so as far as like then transitioning to, into the next season, part of it is in a TV show, you sort of have to, whether it's like Breaking Bad or Dexter, you sort of have to have a journey of your, of, of your characters of where they're heading. Like Breaking Bad, he's a school teacher who's got this kernel of uh, possessive evil <laughs> in his heart that we just watch go full bloom until he's a guy that lets somebody you know, let's Christian Ritter die in her bed rather than saving her. And at, at that point, you're like, oh, that's, that's this guy's journey. Um, in the books, Dexter Morgan sort of stays, the, he's, that's, and, and with book, it kind of works really well, but he stays the same. Like, there's not really any sort of growth. And we wanted to really carry Dexter on a, on a journey of, uh, going forward, you know, like yeah. the, the first one being about his code and being about his past and deciding which way he's going to go. Is he going to just be a flat out, killer like his brother and find that connection he's always been looking for or is he gonna or is there gonna be this kernel of goodness within him that he's gonna look at his brother and go i i can't go that way you know um i'm gonna choose my sister ultimately my uh my stepsister she's dead uh uh and then you know and then from there you know like season four it's like can dexter can he have can he be a dad and a serial killer can he have a family and have a serial killer you know, season three, it's uh, can Dexter have a friend? Um, so, so that's that's why we sort of veered away from the books. 
the books are great. Um, but that's why we didn't follow them. Also, it's just sort of like, uh, I think they optioned the first two books and we just stuck with the first book and went our own way from that point forward. Yeah, and, and the, books, the books are radically different in the show. At some point, the books turn more right. mystical, right? And they turn more supernatural and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like book three, uh, Moloch or something is actually the demon that's inside of Dexter. Yeah. And he loses him and he just sits on his front porch and drinks beer all, the whole book. <laughs> and misses, misses Moloch. <laughs> Yeah, which is fine, you know. It's a, it's a way to go. Yeah, that's a, but, that's, uh, a, that's another show. That's another show. We wanted to keep uh, it more about about him, the about his own journey, and it's like the core of who he was, of what he wanted was, was at the end of that first season, when he's when after the the case gets solved and his brother looks like he committed suicide, and he's walking out, and all of a sudden you see the balloons overhead, and everyone's throwing confetti at Dexter, and it's like we love you, and it's like. At that moment, we all connected with him because that is, uh, for the most part, that's what we want out of life, right? We want to be loved and we want to connect and we want people to look at us with like uh, joy and care. And even this like uh, sick serial killer uh, has that need within him, you know, which is why he followed this code. Um, which is great because it's not a, a yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's the thing that I think a lot of people you know, it's like one of the things that's difficult, you know, for I think a lot of young writers to understand is you're in the end, you're not writing a show about a serial killer. You're writing a show about a human being. Right. Yeah. And it's like, who is a serial killer? And so if you set out to, if you set out to write a show about a serial killer, that's not, it's not going to be as great of a show. If you, but if you set out to write a human being who, who his greatest, Hang up is that his desire to murder other people, right? Yeah. And and I remember when Capture I first your bad guys and chop them up into pieces, put them in garbage bags, and throw them in the ocean. Well, you know, we all got our quirks. <laughs> That's right, but, but it's his but the code. Secret to him, the secret, yeah, it's his code. But the secret to him is like the voiceover that he pulls us in. We hear his thoughts, um, and uh, that's interesting. You know, that's yeah. that's. Uh, he says the things. Sometimes he thinks the things we wish we could say. Right, um, and we find ourselves agreeing with him, even though we may not go. I mean, hopefully, we're not going on the same uh -huh. path as he is. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah, and so and that voiceover, you know, changed as it went along, and uh, and he became more human, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and voiceover is, you know, I, I, there's more. Let's just hop on this just for a second because you've been on two really great shows that use voiceover to it to their advantage dexter and yeah. jessica jones um jessica jones is so fun. Yeah. and so fun and and the how how can you overuse voiceover so give us your opinion of how you can use voiceover well in your scripts versus why in the world are you using why are you choosing to use voiceover give us give us your thoughts on that yeah, it's funny because it, it comes from that sort of noir tradition, you know, Humphrey Bogart, whatever. And a lot of times, if you look at those, it feels dated because it's coming from the, the literary tradition of, I walked in the room and I saw the door. The door said, Carl, Dr. Carl Hill. I opened the door and stepped inside, you know, uh, as you're watching that happen, which Sure, it's cool to hear Bogart saying that stuff, but uh, after a while, I mean, I think that's why people sort of hate voiceover sometimes and why they say it's a cheat or whatever. Um, we always tried to use it 
not to ex not to uh, explain story, but to give his point of view or or, or just his point of view. Uh, and that's what helped, again, that's what helped us endear ourselves. Because if we just watch, a lot of times if you just watch Jessica Jones make a series of bad decisions while she's drinking bourbon all the time, and that's all you had, I think you, there's a chance you might just be like, oh, she's just a jerk. Why am I watching her? But because we understand what's going on inside of her, because we're being allowed into her secret, her secret life, her inner life, uh, we lean in as viewers. Uh, and so if you're not, Causing, if you're not giving a point of view on a scene that a lot of times is counter to what you're looking at, or that gives you a clue to what your character is thinking that, uh, you know, cause we get this, like just in the creative side of making these sort of shows, um, we know we, we've not, we've know we've, we know we've failed uh, our actor with the voiceover when they go, can't I just portray this with my acting? Uh, and then we have to, then we, then we you know, they, they help us, Christian Ritter and Michael C. Hall both helped us in those moments when sometimes we would slide into that. Uh, and we'd be like, yeah, of course, you're Michael C. Hall, you're Christian Ritter, you can, you can easily portray that <laughs> with a look, with a smile, with a, you know, with your reaction. Um, and so that, that keeps us on our toes and that keeps us sharp uh, as far as the use of voiceover too, you know. Um, and sometimes, you know, uh, sometimes it sells something too. Uh, sometimes you'll put some voice over just to, to help explain it, to explain what's going on to the people that are reading it, that are okaying the script and all that. Um, and then when you shoot it, you realize, yeah, it's, we're expressing it. You don't, don't need it at all. Yeah. But it helps sell a scene or sell a story or whatever. Yeah. Not that we ever consciously do that, but it, it, it happens that way too. The, the, um, with Dexter, I, even though probably season two should be my favorite because it's the one where I made the guest appearance in. Right. Um, put a few the, friends in. Yeah, as one of the aliases. I am, if anybody wants to go back, I don't know which episode it is, but you can see my name as an alias for yeah. someone. Yeah. But anyway. Um, and, that, the, uh, and that episode was, that season was like, can I have love? You know? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like yeah. my two favorite seasons of Dexter, you know, I love the whole show, but my two favorite seasons were the first season and the Trinity season, which was season three or four? Yeah, season four. Yeah, John Lithgow, just the best, most terrifying bad guy and the <sighs> kindest, most wonderful human being you've ever met. It was brilliant casting. It really was. It was brilliant casting. And I, I the, Well, at but, that point, everyone had forgotten that he was a psychopath, a big-time psychopath in the 70s, right? Not, not in person, but... He used to play yeah. that, like Blowout yeah. and 80s yeah. Raising Cane. And Raising Cane, yeah. He was always yeah, super exactly. scary. Yeah. But at that point, he was the guy on Third Rock from the Sun. He was the right, goofy right. alien dad, you know? Right. Remember, remember his... People going, why would you get John Lithgow? It's like, uh, here, why don't you just go watch uh, Brian De Palma's Blowout? Yeah. <laughs> have, you, have you seen Cliffhanger? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but both of those, both of those uh, so much of the entire show, but particularly those seasons dealt with Dexter's kind of pursuit and struggle with identity and family yeah. and um and our, our I, struggles which exactly yeah. that's what I'm getting to my yeah. point is is that's why I, I love the show because it's this really dark subject matter that's dealing with really and I think it's why I connected with so many people it was this massive hit I remember the first yeah. 
season, it was so big for Showtime that CBS had bought Showtime and CBS started airing edited versions of it during the summer on CBS. Do you remember that? I do. The, 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 the behind the scenes on that yeah. was that there was a writer's strike. That's so they right. Had no, they had no content. And so they put it on there and it went from being like a, a pretty nice little hit, like underground hit on Showtime. But then suddenly millions of people were watching it on CBS. And you could like change the, I mean, you know, it's not, it's not any gorier. People think it's going to be super gory, but it's not like CSI is gorier than anything we did. Uh, even right. though the themes are gorier, the themes of what we did to your head and all that were, and the swearing, which suddenly, right. you know, Dokes, Dokes is like, shut up, mother lover, you know. Yes, there was, a lot of, there was a lot of F-bombs that had to be removed because of the yeah. uh, sister and Dokes. Uh, I forget yeah, yeah. the sister, but yeah. <laughs> but, um, what, the, what the flip, Dexter? <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, but man. that did, that, 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 that season on uh, CBS made it so that season two, the numbers were enormous. Yeah, it just blew up, right? By the way, you made me remember my favorite all-time television cuss cuss word, where they changed the uh, the the cuss word was from Smokey and the Bandit when he looks at him and he says, "You scum bum," and you're like, "What? That's not what he said. It's <laughs> yeah. not what yeah. he said." Anyway, um, so yeah, so breakfast Breakfast Club, my favorite is "Frog Out." He <laughs> says to the principal, "Frog, Frog. Out." Yeah. Right. What's the, what's the, um, so this, this idea of what I was, what I was trying to get to is this idea of you can deal with this really dark subject matter. And I think what people are, what people really connected with is a character that actually deals with what it means to be human, what we all deal with this idea of, of belonging family, you know, a connection with someone. And he finds that with Deborah. And, yeah. and his relationship with Deborah just continues to kind of pull him out of these dark worlds, especially when Trinity, when he sees with the Trinity killer that the John Lithgow character, when he sees that I can have a normal life too, it is possible. He, 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 he thinks, man, I can finally do this. And then of course, his entire world is shattered. Yeah. And and uh, and you see that the one person who's there to kind of pull him out of it though is Deborah, and yeah. um, and I was just always impressed with that that ability to be able to deal with such dark, heavy subject matter in such a light, uh, hopeful way. Yeah, um, yeah, man. I, uh, I we like the extremes, you know. Whether you know, that's why we like crime stories and why they're they're so with the, in spite of the fact they're crime stories, they're very moral. You know, horror stories, yep. uh, horror movies, in spite of how horrorful they are, they're a lot of times they're very moral. Yeah. Um, not that I care about morals, but it's, uh, there's a lightness within them. Right, 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 right. You know what I mean, though? It's like, uh, I mean, even, even uh, you know, I, I love Old Testament because yeah. the Old Testament are these extreme stories yeah. of people just screwing up yeah. again and again. And like, not just like, uh, tiny screw-ups. I didn't. I forgot to make dinner last night. Right. Uh, you know, massive murdering. genocidal <laughs> yeah. screw-ups. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. and within yeah. them, we find we find hope and truth. You know, and and yeah. uh, that was a fun thing. Like, was it the season six when most death w was up against Dexter? Yeah, you know, like yeah. Dexter at first. 
looks at this man who supposedly has turned his life around. Yeah. And he, um, and he's looking at it from his point of view of life. Uh, we're all steeped in sin. We're all evil. And, uh, and suddenly to his much of a surprise, here's this man who really did turn his life around. It really yeah. did become uh, something more, which yeah. is what Dexter was dealing with in that season. You know, yeah. Can, yeah. Can, can I change even this much? Right. Or are we like on this path that, that is inevitable? Yeah. You know? um, I think I still have my coffee mug from that season. The, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, so let's get to, you know, like you, so, you know, you're part of this huge show and it's, it's very great. Lucky, yeah. Very lucky. And it, um, what, so then what's it like to be a part of such a beloved show and then have people react so negatively to its finale? <laughs> like, is that just a, like, were you, were you personally crushed by that? Like, were you like, oh man, or do you get defiant about it? And like, I ah, screw you guys, you don't know anything. Like, what's, what's it like to be on the other side of a TV show when people are, cause I'm, you know, I wonder how the Game of Thrones guys are and all these other guys yeah. that when show are lost or whatever, when shows, shows end, beloved shows end the, not in a way that uh, most audiences expect. What was that like on your end? Yeah. Um... Uh, it was rough, you know. Uh, what I learned from that is that after a few seasons, the show is not the writer's show anymore. It's not the actor's show anymore. It is, it is just as much our show as it is the audience's show. Mm. Um, and uh, it is really hard to land the airplane at, when, yeah. you know, at that point. And on top of that, there's, there are so many things that are going on above us and below us and you know, uh, directions that, that, you, that you may have wanted to go, but you can't because maybe the network doesn't want it or the producers don't want it or, um, and so, you know, you sort of, you've got all these captains at this ship and you got to sort of try to land it the best way that you can. And even when you do, sometimes things, sometimes things get removed. And, um, and while I do, uh, I do stand by, like I do think our ending was flawed but i think our ending I, I still kind of stand by the ending of like the conundrum of dexter morgan that he uh if he were a real monster he just would have stayed in miami and he never would have turned tried to turn away from it you know uh but then but it was left so sort of ambiguous as he's a as he's a a, a, a lumberjack out in oregon which granted monty python might have screwed that up for us a little bit uh, I'm a lumberjack. You know. But it almost felt like you guys were trying to tell a Frankenstein story at the end. Like he is pieces of all these other people in his life. And in the end, like we're not going to kill him because in the end, the, I the idea of Dexter doesn't die. He lives on. And we don't know if he's yeah. going to just live in peace or if he's going to continue on his ways. It was like. But, yeah, the intent, that is the intention. It, it, sort of, it sort of was a little too wide open maybe. But yeah. like, did he go to Oregon? Because that's. In that, in that like stretch of land, there are, there were at that point, there were currently like 14 or 15 serial killers in that like Canada, Washington, Oregon, Northern California area. It's like this weird magnet of serial killers. So did he move there because of that? In real life. Yeah, you know, serial killers like it wet and cold apparently. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Or, or was he separating himself from humanity? So that he wouldn't do this thing anymore, and was yeah. he punishing himself by surrounding himself with chainsaws 
which is his <laughs> origin story of how his mother was killed. Right. You know, like so it's it's it was landing all these things. But it was it was it was it was heart it was crushing when uh uh critics really hated it. And then like on Twitter I had like fans who former former Dexter fans Dexter fans who like, you know, threatened me. Come after you. Yeah. <laughs> threatened my life. We'll put you on a table, Reynolds. What did you do? Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it, it definitely gave me a lot of grace to other shows. Did you uh, experience any, any of that toxic, uh, what, they, what, what do they call now? Uh, um, uh, toxic fandom or whatever? Did you experience yeah, any yeah, of that? Yeah. I, I so. feel, yeah, I feel like we were uh, the early vanguards. <laughs> You're welcome, <laughs> Internet. <laughs> um, oh. Was there a big, was there a big um, decision that came from up above on whether – because, you know, a lot of us, I mean, I assumed he was going to die. Like, was there a big decision? Like, no, we're not going to kill him. It, or did it happen organically in the room? Uh, I'll, give I'll, a I'll give a spoiler. Yeah. I'll, give a, I'll give a spoiler warning at the beginning of this. So. Yeah, I, I, uh, we told the story that, uh, I mean, like I said, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people in the room on that. So we found a way that we all agreed upon. Yeah, to, to, to end the season. Um, so then you, from oh, you of know, course, everyone talked about all sorts of different ways. But, you know, can you imagine at the top of season eight, knowing we're ending, like there was hundreds of ideas of how we exactly, to end it, yeah, know? and that's so, and everyone has their own theories. I had my own theories that that's right. were yeah. wrong completely. Um, the uh, so you you uh, not too long after that, you worked on a few other great shows, but then you segued on, you segued into the Marvel world. And um, and so you 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 you've been you had been in the you've been in the Marvel world for a, a little while working on a couple of different shows. Uh, Jessica so, Jones, Iron Fist, and Inhuman. Yeah. yeah. So with with Jessica Jones, I would love to talk to you a little bit about that. You were brought in by Melissa, who you met on Dexter. Is that right? That's right. Yep. 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 She yeah. she uh, she's awesome. She's, and, she's great. She did. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of, explain a little bit for people, because in, in many ways, that's, that's how most writers' rooms are built, right? People meet each other in, in working environments, and they just, you figure out who you like working with, and whose voices you like, and the style, right? And so then when you go on to do other stuff, it's like, hey, let's bring that person in too, right? That, is that kind of how it works? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That is, it, it's, it's the people that uh, come with fresh ideas and are, excited to be there that pay attention in the room that are focused in the room that um don't uh uh crap on ideas <laughs> you know uh unless you have a unless you have an alternate pitch um yeah it's uh because uh, you, you i mean not all rooms aren't like all people you've worked with before but usually that core three or four that you're building from uh, starts there, and then a lot of times she'll be like, "Is there anybody you worked with in the past that you, you'd want to pull over here too?" So uh, yeah, it it really is. You know, I mean, sure, agents and managers have a have a, a bit of a sway, but it really does come. To, you know, even even when it's like a new writer that we don't that we've never worked with before. Uh, if we read if we read somebody, uh, then we we call other showrunners that have worked with this person and say, "Hey, what were they like in the room? Were they?" Because I read a sample and the sample's great, and sometimes they're, you know, sometimes the showrunners are like, "Oh, you know, if I had a show right now, I would, I would have kept her." 
And then sometimes people say, yeah, they're a good writer. And, and you have to, you read, you read between the lines then. Like <laughs> yeah. that's where it ends. You right, know? right, 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 right. Because um, being in the room is, you know, explain for people that don't understand, right? Explain a little bit. Like you are, you are together for a really long time, so you you have to be able to figure out how to get along with these people. You can't be the, you know, you're not going to last long if you're an a hole, basically. That's right. You will. Yeah. You will not. And you know, even as a showrunner, uh, after a while, people don't. You, may not want to work with you if right. if if you are a, a jerk to the people yeah. you work for yeah. or if you don't value their ideas or if you're the kind of person that all ideas have to come from you you know because the the joy of writing for tv is this huge collaborative collaborative experience yeah. and a lot of times you know it, when you when you're staffing a room up it's not like you want all these all the same kind of people either there's some people that you're bringing in because they're hilarious and they're going to give you like that those five great jokes, you know, that week, you know, yeah. there's some people that are just like, you know, when I think of like Jim Kruger, who are good with these big giant grand ideas, you yeah. know, that, yep. that you can pin a season on. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's just people that are really great at story or people that are always going to like come from left field. And you may only use like three ideas that are from left field that season, but those three ideas are so freaking great that it's worth it, you know? Yeah. You don't have to feel the pressure that every day I got, I got to come up with like seven ideas. Like it, when I, when people come on staff, on any staff that I'm working on, um, I'll sit with like the, the younger writers and I'll, I'll say, listen, we don't need, your job is to be present and your job is to pay attention. Uh, you may be writing on the board some, uh, but if you come up with, if you give us like one or two great ideas or great moments or great dialogue things a week, then you're solid as a staff writer or as a wow. story editor. You shouldn't feel the need because a lot of times you're so fresh and raw. Like I had a showrunner and even on Dexter, he's like, Scott, your ideas are great. You don't have to do it all the time. Mm. You know, like really pitch things that you think are going to land. That's uh, and so you don't, you don't have to feel like you got to carry anything. Yeah. That's not why we hired you. Yeah. I mean, that's some of the best. I mean, I'm still pretty talkative but um <laughs> but that was some of the that was some of the best uh uh that's the 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 best advice i i ever got and so i pass that along to younger writers and a lot of times they they pay attention to it and um because it's a hard thing because a lot of times when you're coming into a room if you haven't like if you haven't come up doing tv like if you haven't been the writing assistant who's got who's getting lunches for the writer's room and every once in a while you get to sit inside of it and then you get transferred to be or the writer's PA, and then you get to be the writer's assistant. So you're in the room taking notes and assembling assembling story at the end of every day. So now you're really into the rhythm of a room, you know, uh, and then move into it. If you're not, a lot of times you're a writer who's been sitting, who's been working in a bookstore like I was, uh, and then at night working on a screenplay. And, uh, and so when you're in a room, there's a certain muscle that you need that makes sure that you are present. And, and I think when you're a writer who's like a, who hasn't worked in a room, you hear, you hear an idea that someone's talking about and then you let that thing sit in your brain and you ruminate on it for a while and you're thinking it through. Meanwhile, that room is moving 100 miles an hour and we're in scene seven and you get, now you've got your great idea for that scene that we've already locked down. And then 
I see this all the time. And they go, hey, about what if, uh, you know, what if uh, Jessica Jones uh, doesn't take the picture, but she throws the camera across the room? And you're like, we're way past that now. And so you have to stay, uh, it's a muscle, you know, you have to be able to stay with a room and follow where it's going and, and participate in, in that part. So for younger writers, I would, I would encourage you to like, focus on staying with the room. Uh, because we're not trained to think that way as writers. You know, we are trained to like sit by our computer and look out the window and dream of this thing and then write it down and then go back over tomorrow. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's not as rapid movement. Um, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's not, it doesn't come natural to, I think, a lot of people, but that's what TV writing is. That's uh, what being in a room is. Um, uh, now, you, 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 you know, I was talking to Jeremy and he has a, you know, he does half hour Chuck yeah. Lorre show where they, and he described the process, which is just sounds crazy to me. He, he, they write in the room. Yeah. yeah. Line by line, man, like line by line, they go through the script and they write it. Um, yeah. Uh, so that, you know, that's, that's one way. How do you, how does, um, you know, you, 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 you've done, you know, you're one, you're a one hour guy. So how does, yeah. uh, what is the process uh, like for writing, uh, writing for your shows? I can only speak to how I like to do it. So that's what I will do. Uh, but I learned it on Dexter. Uh, and then of course being, you know, even, even on uh, the following, I sort of pushed it this way a little bit. And then, uh, uh, and then all the Marvel shows, cause I was like the number two in all of those then at that point under the showrunner. Um, we break it by character. So Dexter Morgan does this, Jessica Jones, you know, we, we follow her at the beginning of the season, we break the whole season long, you know, uh, where she starts and where she ends. We know what the theme of the show is going to be, what the theme of that season is going to be. Uh, we know who our bad guy is going to be and how they're going to interact. And we just sort of break it, a big loose version of the whole thing. And then once we start breaking episodes, um, the way I like to do it, is we break by character so we'll follow like a like a dexter season would have been following dexter following deb uh following the big bad and um you know depending on you, you, you go down there from the other characters but a lot of you know uh batista might have a story that 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 uh, season or whatever or that uh episode and so we break it we break each thing by character uh, on the boards, so Dexter goes over like four boards, and Dad would go across like two and a half or three, and the other characters would be sort of lower, lower extent, and we and we break it in different color markers. So Dexter would have been black, and Dad would have been blue, and Big Bad's always red. Uh, and then uh, once we break once we break the episode down that way, then we would weave it. We put numbers next to it, and and then so now you have like uh, a beat sheet basically. Then the writer would go off, writer or writers, depending on who's working on it, would go off and take that beat sheet and pull it into a beautiful outline, which would be like a 10 to 15 page outline. Uh, and then pass it to the writers and we all read it and give notes, like the upper levels would give notes on it. They go back and do those notes. If we're crushed for time, the showrunner or the number two might sit down with it and just take a pass at it and then it gets sent off to them. And then if it all goes well, the writer then goes off for however many days we have before production. <laughs> Sometimes you get two weeks. 
sometimes. <laughs> I've I've done some where we had two days. Wow. Uh, I've done I did one which was less than a day. Wow. Uh, uh, but but the good news is your outlines that we do on the on the shows I work on um, are pretty fleshed out. There's even some dialogue in it and all that. So so you're just like expanding this thing and, and finding the magic within it, you know. So what is your, what is your, what does your outline look like? 10 to 15 pages. Is that, are you doing like, is it almost treatment style where you like you said, where you have occasional dialogue and you're kind of, what is it, what does it look like? What does that document look like when you do it? Um, it'd be like uh, interior Miami Metro police station. And then we just throws out the, like, like several paragraphs of what happens in that scene. And okay. then the next scene, like slug line. And then pros and slug line and pros, you know. Okay, uh, so like scene by scene. So you you basically come up yes. with the, the scenes. The, so you have the structure, first scene, yep. end scene, everything in between, but it's just kind of pros yep. out. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's so fascinating to me. Yeah. And just hearing the different processes is just such a fascinating thing. The, the, uh, so with Jessica Jones, which is such a great show, and you, I know you're from a huge, the, yeah. came from but, that, they're a great comic book. You right, know, and, that, and that's what Brian I... Brian Michael you, Bendis and Michael Gatos yeah. created uh, from whole cloth a brand new superhero. You know, like she's, she's, not, she's not old school. Like the rest of the Marvel shows, you know, Iron Fist is definitely like 70s because of the Kung Fu craze that was happening in the inner cities. Uh, Luke Cage is because of exploitation movies that were happening in the 70s. Daredevil's even before that. Um, but Jessica Jones is just this beautiful noir dream of a character that came from Bendis and Gatos that was like a gift to us as writers that we had that template you know of like a 11 issue 12 issue or 20 I forget how many issues but this that's this very compact thing of her up against the purple man you know uh it was great it was great you you I know you're a huge comic book fan so you've known you know not just that comic but so all these other characters you've worked for in humans and Iron Fist, and you know these characters, you know, you've known that world. Did you feel more than some of the other shows you've worked on? Did you feel like kind of that added pressure as a fan of comics coming into this context? Like, did oh, you feel man. a sense of like, how, I, need to, I, need to, I need to be a good caretaker of these characters? You know, remember I was talking about with Dexter, like by the time you get past episode, season four, it's now the fans just as much as ours. Well, that's where we start. It's more the fans than it's ours, uh, because there's there's a bunch of people like me who grew who grew up reading him when he was a little kid, uh, so they have a they have a relationship with these characters that uh, sometimes are stronger, way stronger than 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 a lot of the writers may, may even have, you know. So it's it's you know it's scary. Like with Iron, Iron Fist was was tough because so so many people love him, but then also. So many people nowadays would, you know, got upset because why are you giving, you know, it, it's like the white savior sort of complex of this right. rich white kid who's going to come and learn Kung Fu and is better than everybody else in the whole wide world, which is like right at the same time that like Trump was becoming president, you know, like it was like this whole, you know, like there's a huge backlash against, against that, you know, why can't it be an Asian guy? Uh, why can't it be an Asian? Why can't it be the you know an Asian woman? Whatever. Yeah, who wins in a fight, Shang Chi or, or Iron Fist? Has Marvel ever decided that? Uh, I tried. I try. I pushed so hard to find that out. 
things, you know, because there's Marvel Cinematic, uh, yeah. the movie section with the TV section. Yeah. And back then it was like Jeff, Jeff Loeb was the TV, the TV section. And it was yeah. awesome and great. And I loved it. Such a good time. And uh, but a lot of times we would suggest, you know, especially me being such a Marvel head. I'd be like, oh, let's have them fight. You know, whatever big bad that I'm right. you know, really excited about them fighting this person. Uh, like I really wanted Jessica Jones to be up against Craven the Hunter. I was like, wouldn't it be awesome if like suddenly Jessica Jones, you know, this rich white uh, hunter guy decides he wants to play the most dangerous game in New York City with her. And they're like, great idea. We love it. He doesn't belong to us. Yeah, can't touch. Yeah, can't touch it. Can't touch it. Sometimes they wouldn't even tell us that. They'd just be like, great idea. Not going to happen. I'm like, okay, great, great. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, Wouldn't that have been great? Oh, ah, that would be amazing. Um, but you didn't have Craven, but man, oh man, you had David Tennant. David Tennant, another, another, who's like another one of these people that is like no, terrifying Scott. on screen, but yes. is the nicest human being you've ever met. Man, I mean, he. He is so good as the Purple Man. And, and you know, explain it for people a little bit. The Purple Man in the comics is an interesting character, but he's literally purple in the comics. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you can't do that. do that. Yeah, you couldn't no. do that in a grounded television series. So it's, but we put uh, him in a purple suit, and you'd see, like, the cuff of his sleeve. And, and whenever her, Jessica Jones, I mean, this was the, um, our cinematographer, Manuel Billiter, uh, whenever the PTSD would start to hit, the, the lights would go a little more purple. So we were true to the feeling of, the, of that thing, of that, of that character without, you know, even the name Kilgrave is a ridiculous name. <laughs> Kilgrave, yeah, like why not kill, you know, why not murder tomb, right? Um, uh, so, you know, we had to sort of play with that even a little bit. Jessica Jones made fun of him, you know, when she, when she so that's the name you made up. Um, the, uh, um, to me, the, the core of a good bad guy, though, is uh, is understanding their pain and where they come from, so that if at a certain point in the in the season of tell, I know movies is probably different, but within a TV show, if at a certain point uh, you don't feel for them and understand them, then I think we as writers uh, have failed the series, you know, have, as, as a big bad. Because even as terrifying as Trinity was, as terrifying as Kilgrave was. Uh, you know, I, I think that the episode where Jessica Jones is stuck in the house, I, I mean, I wrote the episode, so I'm a little biased, but uh, where she's stuck in the house with Kilgrave when he bought her the house and he's just trying to make everything sort of perfect for her and you understand his backstory. Uh, like your heart, my goal was to make your heart break for this big bad who has been just a nightmare creature up until that, that time. And, and, uh, uh, and, and, that made you care for him and care for the season just a little bit more, you know. Uh, if your bad guy is just like, I'm going to destroy the world, then that's it. Who cares? Who cares? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The, that was a fantastic episode. Uh, um, and he, his performance in it was spectacular. Did he win? He didn't win the Emmy, did he? No. Yeah, he should. Uh, Kristen Ritter's so great, too, as Jessica. And the, the, um, for, for me, what makes that show work is her she's just so uh i the character of jessica jones it's i it's like her superpower is her ability to not give an f until she 
can't help but give an ass. <laughs> yeah, because right. deep down in her soul, you know she does. Exactly. But she put up these walls because yeah. all these terrible things have happened to her, and she lost her family. Yeah. And uh, every, you know she feels like she she destroys everything she touches, but she really she that's you know her and Patsy have this like on again off again relationship that she that that is so important to her. And I tell you what, like Christian Ritter, uh, like Michael C. Hall, are the greatest collaborators uh, working with us as writers. Uh, just, I, I'm I'm jealous of everybody who gets to work with them in the future because uh, they they never felt they never made us as writers feel like idiots. They never trashed it. They helped. They always helped make everything better. Um, or they could be talked into understanding what we're trying to do and finding a better way of doing it. You know, um, they're just pure wonderful, great artists. They're the best. Hello. Yeah. I wish I could work with them all the time. You, you and I, uh, we've been friends for a really long time. And we, uh, one of the things that we have bonded over is our mutual, mutual uh, affection for uh, the Western genre. Amen. And uh, we've, we've been a part of a group of guys who for years used to meet and watch uh, Westerns all the time. And you are a wild bunch guy. I think if I remember correctly, that is, yeah. um, that was kind of your, that My was, a, that was, a, of all time. yeah, it's a, that was a seminal film for you. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I would um, say the two, the two seminal films for me, as far as like what I wanted to be as a creator and a writer would be the wild bunch and asphalt jungle. Uh, and I really? look back on them and th yeah. And they're, cause they're both about the most flawed human beings you can imagine who in the midst of their flaws that you uh, understand, even, even if you don't like completely understand their backstory, but you, are, you, mean, you understand their backstory in both those movies and, and why they are what they are, uh, they find their moments of redemption. You know, um, that end thing when they step up and decide they're gonna rescue Angel and the Wild Bunch. Uh, and it's just as simple as let's go. Why the hell not? Yep. <laughs> you know? Yep. It's, that, that moved me as a kid, and it moves me today. Yeah. Uh, same with Asphalt Jungle. I mean, granted, they're, you know, they're all going to do a heist, yeah. but they have their own code, and they're all, trying to, they're all trying to work with each other and for each other uh, and stand up for each other, uh, in spite of the fact that they've all been kicked in the teeth repeatedly, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, I... Uh, yeah, I love, I love, I love that super flawed, just screwed up human beings. If we could, if we could introduce and a we, lot of watching it that way. Yeah. Yep. If we could introduce, if we, if we could have people, all, all, all 11 people who are going to listen to this podcast, uh, if we could have, if we could, <laughs> if we could introduce them, I'll make to my a, family listen to it. That's, that's like 10 more. <laughs> If we if we could introduce this audience to a filmmaker, can you think of a better filmmaker to introduce someone to than Sam Peckinpah? Ah, uh, no. I mean, he, he is the king of the flawed. Whether it's Ju Steve McQueen as Junior Bonner, or uh, Dustin Hoffman in a, a horrific movie Straw Dogs, but you know, like I, I don't enjoy that movie. But his, his the truth that Peckinpah is trying to express to us is, is moving the wild bunch. Um, Give I us love your... Convoy. You probably do too, because it's from 
yes. one of the greatest country songs of all time. Of course, convo. So tell me, tell me, uh, give us your give us your order of how people should experience Peckinpah. Where do you, where do you want them to start? Wild bunch? No. No, I think that's a great question, Jimmy Duke. Uh, I oh man. I feel like you should start with Ride the High Country. Oh, stop it. Oh, I love it so much. Because that's, that's the key to everything. That's the key to Sam Peckinpah. That's the key to a man who hopes to enter his house justified. Um, yes. And the, the duality of man, uh, his struggle with good and evil and with living by a code and, and betraying that code and being betrayed. Like that to me, that's the Rosetta Stone for all things Sam Peckinpah. So I'd go ride the high country, and then you're ready for the Wild Bunch. Uh, and they're all the Wild Bunch. Like they're all a bunch of depraved, horrible human beings. Yes. The way he introduces them, where you think they're the heroes, and suddenly they slaughter people in the street in, yep. in a beautiful blood ballet yep. that is both horrific and gorgeous to look at. I mean, that's that's what he does. He presents the horror and the beauty of mankind yeah. uh, in an unflinching way. Yeah. Um, and I would go Junior Bonner because now you're ready for sort of a sweeter story Yeah. about, uh, um, especially if you're, you're getting older like I am and like you are, where it's like, how do you, you may have been this like grand crazy man when you were younger, it's my dog. Um, but how do you, how do you, uh, go forward in your life gracefully when you're falling apart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, if you watch those three, you sort of see the full range of who Peckinpah is. But, that, but then you have to go Pat Garrett, Billy the Kid. Uh, yeah, I would almost put, I would put maybe that one maybe a little sooner for me, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I would go, and then if you're continuing on for like the greatest day of your life of, of watching films, uh, uh, you'd have to, then you'd have to sort of hit Steve McQueen again in the getaway, which, uh is not necessarily his like that was a work for hire but it's based on this great jim thompson novel <clears throat> and uh it's so good that i got a tattoo of it uh, in honor of my wife and i surviving 23 years of marriage wait you know, whenever as a getaway i don't understand the getaway because <laughs> uh, whenever whenever like whenever they're being chased by the cops and it's just it's just steve mcqueen just doc and his wife yeah and everybody's out to take him down. The bad guys are trying to take him down. The good guys are trying to take him down. They're driving. She's got the steering wheel, and he's got the shotgun in his hand. And he says, "Punch it, baby!" And she smashes the gas pedal, and they get away, and they, yes. they get through it. And I, it's a great allegory for that. Is great actually. You introduced me. I remember, you know, so we had like these guys. We started meeting years ago, and we for the longest time we would watch like a double years, feature once a month. A double yeah, feature, once a month. Old western and a new western. Yeah. And that's what, and I had not seen Ride the High Country before that group. So I attribute that group to, and it's now become one of my, one of my favorite films. And for you, it's kind of like what you were saying. That's what I, I watch that film and I think to myself, man, you know, if that's, if I'm going to grow old and we all are, then when it comes to the end, I don't want to be in an old folks home. I, I want you to drop me off somewhere in some in the middle of some war torn country and just put a gun in my hand and let me just walk down the street. And, and <laughs> that's the uh, that's the ideal that I that I live for because of that film. It's such a 
it's such a great send off to those two. And then if you have, and if you've watched those two actors play yeah. cowboys up to yep. that point, it's Randolph just Scott such a, and, Randolph Scott uh, and um, Joe McCray. Joe McCray. That's Joe McCray. Yeah, because um, that it works on this meta level because they've been the heroes. I mean, even in even in uh, Blazing Saddles, they're like Randolph Scott. That's right. That's right. He's cow. He was the cowboy. He was the cowboy of cowboy. When you watch a film, because I know you love films, you're you're. I know like a there's like a handful of people that I know that that have a almost encyclopedic knowledge of of cinema, and you watch a lot of stuff that I've never even you know heard of. So I grew up watching film. But I didn't grow up in the context of, um, of like, you know, adventure. You know, my, 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 my film viewing wasn't adventurous, right? Like, it just stuck with what was on TV, what my dad, yeah. what my dad was showing me. So I grew up watching westerns and, you know, kung fu movies. And, yeah. you, know, Saturday, you know, my Saturday mornings after cartoons was usually, you know, a Bruce Lee movie. Um, Wonderful. And a western and... You know, and then, of course, I'm a child of the 80s. So, you know, all those great 80s films. But um, yeah. and, you know, at that time, that's when, you know, 70s. You let off some steam. Yeah. <laughs> Bennett, you should have a little steam. But that's when the, um, you know, and then 70s cinema. I didn't discover 70s cinema until, you know, college. Right. Uh, which is probably right. I guess that's probably most people. But um, yeah. I guess my question to you is how, you know, um, how did you where did your love of film develop and, and, and how did you find yourself becoming more experimental with your film viewing? Like, when did you start going, man, I'm going to start watching stuff that I've never heard of before. How, how did that, how did that come about? Cause I know a lot, you know, a lot of people didn't grow up that way. Did you grow up that way? Um, I grew up super duper evangelical. And so movies were kind of uh, the bad guy, you know, like my grandma, my grandma, you know, she she famously said to our family anyway um, that she'll never go to an R-rated movie because if Jesus comes back again, he won't look for her there. <laughs> oh, man, <laughs> so I, I know, I, but like, so R-rated movies were like verboten. So I had to sneak all those or catch them at friends' houses or, you know, like, uh, or or convince <laughs> convince them that uh, the Sword and the Sorcerer was actually the Sword and the Stone. It's a Disney movie. It's going to be fine. Um, <laughs> you know. Boy, were they surprised. Yeah, Grizzlies, uh, it's a Disney show. It's going to be fine. It's not <laughs> about a mutant bear killing, prophecy, I mean, it's killing everybody. Um, Phantasm is like Fantasia. Yeah, and I grew up like reading Fangoria magazine, uh, which, which is like great pictures in the uh, famous monsters of Filmland, which was like pictures with like um, sort of witty recaps of the movie. So... I, I and, uh, and and because my parents wouldn't let me watch all those movies, I had to read the novelizations of them. Uh, so they were the grand taboo thing that I had to sneak, and that were a, a, a great adventure to try to, to try to be able to watch. Uh, and I've always been drawn to the things that you know. If people, if someone tells me no, I have a hard time accepting that. <laughs> so I guess that's how it sort of started. Uh, when did you start getting into, um, you know? cinema though like because you did you because you know like yeah, you college it, college yeah it really was because then i didn't have to sneak it out anymore i was able right. to, i was able to go to the video store on the weekend with me and my 
friend Terry Wright and uh, uh, when everybody else would go away, we went to the same college for a little bit, not the same time because I'm old and you're not as old, but uh, we'd go to the video store and I would rent the stacks. I, like I had lists of movies that I always wanted to see. So I went to college and I just started catching up and I'd watch 10 movies a weekend, you know? Um, so I, yeah, like you, college is where I opened up in the 70s. And as I voraciously consumed all of those stories, uh, then I started, I started fixating on things. So when I moved to LA, suddenly I, I had access to the entire uh, 80s Hong Kong movies and that, that whole movement of John Woo and oh, Lamb. And yeah. So I, I would, my poor wife, I, me and my friend Dan Budnick, who I worked with at the, at the bookstore, would uh, twice a week go to Eddie Brandt's Saturday matinee, a video store, and we would rent 10 movies. And that's what we would do on Saturdays. Eddie Brandt's, man. Eddie Brandt's. Still there. Still there. And I know. So great. One, uh, time so I, one time I went into Eddie Brandt's and asked for, um, what was it? An episode of something. And uh, it was like some obscure episode. And they said, hey, write it down. And two weeks later, I got a phone call. Yep. A VHS copy showed up of this random TV show episode that I wanted. Yep. Uh, amazing. So... Yeah, so so that, that's how that's how I did it. I would I, I'd find a genre and I would fixate on it for like a year, and I would go down that rabbit hole so deep and absorb it all until it was time for black exploitation movies, until it was time for kung fu, you know, uh, '70s kung fu movies, Shaw Brothers kung fu movies, or uh, Kenji Fukasaku movies, or you know, get, uh, Yakuza samurai movies, whatever. Um, and I've I've evened it out a lot more now, though. I feel like I've I've dived down those, all of those holes. Uh, so now I'm just voracious for anything and everything, I guess, you know. Last Would night, you... I watched Chopping Mall with the kids on uh, Shudder <laughs> for the Joe Bob, Joe Bob Briggs uh, last yeah. drive-in. Yeah. Chopping Mall. Which um, is fun, because now I get, to, I get to go down these paths with my, my teenage children and show them things that they that they end up really loving like we watched the circle rouge which is jean-pierre melville who's like another fantastic life-changing filmmaker for me you know um and they liked it you know yeah uh even raising my kids as film lovers i didn't let the world tell me that they have to watch barney and all that sort of stuff i was like no i believe that i can show my kids duck soup when they're five years old and they're going to laugh at the slapstick and then when we watch it again when they're eight years old they're going to catch more of the jokes and then when i watch it again when they're 15 years old they can't hardly breathe because now they've grown up watching that thing you know yeah. uh, whereas most times people go that's eh, an old movie why would they want to watch that yeah story's a story you know what people don't believe me when i tell them but it, it's true uh my kids at the age of eight and six they're now 10 and eight but they they sat for the entire three hours and watched it's a mad 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 world with me yeah and yeah. and and my son my more than my daughter my son requests it all the time to this day he he, he wants to watch it again and watch it again and Abbott and costello meets frankenstein it's a mad mad mad, mad. those are we yeah. you know like they love those films those are become like repeat viewings uh in, yeah. in my in our family yeah 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 Abbott and costello meets Frankenstein is like the greatest gateway horror movie ever made. So great. Because you, you show them that, and then you could go, hey, you want to watch Wolfman in his own movie? Here's yep. Which hey, I you go, Frankenstein and Wolfman fought. Yeah. Check this out. And I grew up with those movies, by the way. I, that's, yeah, to me, me like too. Wolfman and, oh, man. 
The lawn, lawn chain. I got is the, the best. Wolfman on my arm now. You know. <laughs> so great. Well, would you say that keeping a kind of a close, keeping old films and older films and, you know, filmmakers you've admired from the past, rewatching them, keeping them kind of close, work, close to your, your heart, has that kind of in your, in, in a sense, kind of kept you fresh and relevant today? Do you feel like it, it continues to inspire your creativity and your writing? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, if, I, if we don't know where we were, how will we know where we're going? You know, um, it's, it's funny, you know, uh, as I said, my son Zane, uh, he's in his freshman year of film school. He's uh, going to the studio school downtown at the LA Center Studios. And he's with a bunch of kids who, uh, young adults, I guess, who have no, like, zero sense of history. Yeah. And it's, like, frustrating for, for Zane even sometimes. But then it's also very exciting because he's able to go, oh, you uh, have never seen uh, The Wild Bunch. You've never seen a Peter Greenaway film. You've never seen, you know, Truffaut, whatever. He's able to show them and he's opening up their world in a way, which is exciting. Um, but it is, it is funny to me to, that, you know, because it's not like, what's funny is that it's not like the filmmakers of your, like uh, Howard Hawk, who had this whole other life who was, a, you know, flying planes and doing all this sort of stuff before, or filmmakers uh, like Frank Capra, who, like, went to war and experienced, you know, life. Now, Jean-Pierre Melville did all sorts of things before he became a filmmaker. It's like nowadays we're sort of, we grow up within our, like, sort of narrow bubble of watching, watching experience. So I think it's, and that's all you have. So I think it's important to, like, tie, to, to keep your... Uh, a non-movie active life just as alive as your cinema, TV, right. watching, streaming, right. now streaming life, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, to have like the, the real life, like, you know, Peckinpah was, worked on a ranch, you know, right. uh, before he became a writer and then a TV director and then a filmmaker. You know? Yeah, you, you can't replace, you can't replace real world experience. But I, at the same time, I don't, I don't understand people because we, you know, we get people who apply to Act One. They're, they they want to be TV writers and they don't watch television. And, I, yeah. and I'm like, I'm like, I don't understand that. Like, you're not, you're not going to, you're not going to succeed. You're, you're not going to get a job yeah. uh, and be successful writing for television if you don't watch television. If you don't love television, yeah. and, and you're not gonna, you know, how, how can you say you want to write films if you don't? You know, th th we get that a lot in in kind of Christian circles. There's such this. You mentioned your grandma, where it's like there's such a, an aversion to certain types of, of film that, that suddenly now you have now closed yourself off to, to so much that yeah. uh, there's not much left. You know, there's, yeah. there's not yeah. much left. And that's kind of, I think, um, something I would, I always recommend, like, look, if you want to do this, make sure that you actually understand the genre. Are you, you know, you, are you a fan of the genre? Are you a fan of this? You know, and, I, and I'm sure, like, even for you, writing for Marvel shows, it helped that it did. I mean, you, you didn't have to be probably a, a fan of comic to, but, books, but it helped, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it, it was a great mix of people that had never even heard of the Inhumans, and those of us who grew up wishing they were an Inhuman. <laughs> you know, um, uh, yeah, I, I definitely think you need both. But they, but those other people were like fans of theater and TV and movies and had a, a had a breadth of an, of an education in, in movies. And, and what's fun too is like, if you're in a, in a good room, 
uh, they'll suggest movies to you that you've never even heard of. Like uh, this guy, Rick Cleveland, is one of the greatest writers I've ever known. Um, Rick Cleveland suggested a movie called, it's Paul Newman, I think he directed it too, called Sometimes a Great Notion. And I'd never even heard of it. And it was like a game changer movie for me. It's incredible. It's so wow. moving. It has, it's like a little flawed, but it's, you know, it's got this scene, this life or death scene about brotherhood and, and, and loving your neighbor and all, all of these things that is so gut-wrenching that I couldn't believe I'd never even heard of it. Like me, Scott Reynolds had never even heard of it. Yeah. Uh, so it's important to be open. And, and now that scene, I'll always be trying to find a way to tell the spirit of that, of that story, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, even like my growing up reading the Bible, like I have, it, it informed me as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a writer. Like a lot of times in the room, I'll bring up, well, you know, there's a story with uh, where Deborah stuck a tent peg through a guy's head. What? <laughs> <laughs> I remember one time you called me. I remember one time you called me and you said, or you texted me and you said, hey, Jimmy, real quick. Uh, do you remember what's the, what's the phrase that's always on those old tables uh, at the front of a church or something? I was like, what? And you're like, yeah, what's that, what's that phrase? It's sometimes carved into a table. And I was like, oh, is that the do this in remembrance of me? And you're like, thanks, got it. And then like later we were talking and you were like, yeah, we were creating a scene and someone had asked you about, you know, church setups and you were like, no, 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 because you were, you were a Christian and they were like, hey, what would be, what would be in an old church? And you were like, well, there, there would be this table where the, uh, where the uh, Lord's Supper stuff would be set up and, and yeah. you wanted to make sure that the art department knew exactly, you know, you wanted yep. it to be authentic. And, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, you were the Christian on set that they could ask those uh, questions to. <laughs> and yeah. um, what was, you know, is it, because um, I know most people, you know, we ask this question and I've, I've talked to you about this a lot. I know you've never experienced any type of, um, you know, uh, oh man, he's a Christian, let's not talk to him. Um, no. if, if anything, you've had to, you've had to approach it from a, from the other angle, which is how do I not be so embarrassed when, when Christians do other things outside the room that oh. I then have to be in the room and have to explain, no, that's not the way Jesus is. Worse now than ever. I think. Yeah. Like I hate being lumped in with a bunch of knuckleheads. Right. This and is that, is that something that drives me crazy? Yeah. Yeah. Is that something that you have a lot of conversations about? Is that something that a lot of people are like, Scott, what, what is the deal with this? Is, like, is it provided opportunities for you to really kind of help people understand, hey, look, uh, this might not be how you believe, but this is how, this is my understanding of how scripture is. Uh, I certainly don't defend the knuckleheads. I, I try to defend what I, like the spirit of where people are coming from, uh, even though I may vastly disagree with them. Um, and how we're all on a path, we're all on a journey of understanding. And some of us, I don't want to say further along, but some of us are, are at, at this seg, you know, are, are up over here, and some people are still down over here. And uh, it's not coming from a malicious thing. That um, well, mo most you know, aren't. Yeah. Most, most yeah, are no, coming. <laughs> There's some. That yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there are some. You're right. There are there are some absolutely horrible examples of people who say they are followers of Christ. Uh, I mean, every time I go to Comic-Con and those, those idiots are out there screaming at people, uh, I'm just like, what, what are you doing? What, why is this helpful? What, yeah, uh, they're my favorite. You're, you're turning people away. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, 
I actually get upset with, with when I t talk to friends who um, complain about like, oh, I feel so persecuted and all of that. Because that's just, to me, that's just, I don't, I don't even know what that means. I don't, I don't know where it comes from. I've never experienced uh, that. And it, but I mean, a writer's room is caustic anyway. We're all making fun of each other to a certain extent, you know. Right. Uh, right. We're all hacking on each other. That's yeah. just part of the process. It's very much a family environment, brother, siblings picking on each other. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah I, that has not been my experience. I don't like the thought of, of uh, like the, victim, the victimization sort of thing. That just drives me crazy. And maybe uh, uh, if you do feel like you're being victimized because of your faith or whatever, or your biases or whatever, um, maybe you need to look at those things and, and see if they really are part of a tradition or that does, has no relevance anymore, or if it's uh, alive and real nowadays, you know? I, 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 uh, maybe maybe uh, you need to look at what you believe. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and really decide if this is, is this, is this just religion or is this something that Jesus was about? Because uh, nine times out of 10, you're gonna, uh, err on, I, I believe we need to err on the side of grace and love, which is the story that he was telling, you know, yeah. uh, making the kingdom of heaven now. Um, yeah. And uh, all the other sort of judgment and I don't know, it just, I mean, and, and I grew up thinking those, a lot of those things. Uh, and uh, I, I don't anymore. And uh, my faith is probably more vibrant and alive. I don't want to say more because it's 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 a spectrum. It's just a different place, and it's yeah. better and closer, and and feels more like the words of Jesus than yeah. uh, a series of judgments yeah. from a um, some being that's up top in space looking down on us with uh, disgust. Yeah, <laughs> which is how yeah. I grew up. I grew up thinking that. I grew up thinking I'm I. I am steeped in sin and I'm a loser and I'm terrible. And this is, and all I do is fail. And, uh, and I define myself by what I didn't do than rather what I do do, you know, do do, do do. Yeah. You define yourself by do do. And that, that's the, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the, that's the lead that I'm going to, um, when I put this, post this out to social media, you yeah. push your, you define yourself by do do. Scott, I will say that, uh, you know, you and your wife, Amy have been She's such, bad. Uh, have been such beautiful examples to me and my wife and uh, we just uh, love you guys and the way you love uh, the way you guys choose to love on other people invite people into your lives and give your lives away for other people uh, it's a beautiful thing and and um, I just thank you for your friendship and I thank you for this time yeah. and I just yeah. appreciate appreciate you and appreciate all, all that you do and all your hard work Well, you guys and, have always been our secret project so <laughs> I'm, I'm happy that you've come along so far. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We still no, got yeah, Amy, Amy's unbelievable. Amy is uh, such a kind and gracious person. She makes me a much more kind and gracious person because yeah. that's not my natural predilection. Uh, even the way that she's helping, she's having us help, you know, uh, refugee families and things like that. That's like right. It's, it's, she, she's, you should, we should always be trying to connect ourselves with people that are going to make it better. Yeah. Whether that means, you know, uh, in some sort of spiritual whatever way, or as, as a writer, 
you should be connecting yourself with people that are better than you because that's the only way you're going to become a better writer. I see so many people who just sort of like surround themselves with people at the same sort of level or they're maybe the top of the heap. And if you're doing that, you'll never, you'll never be great. You'll never, you'll never, you'll never be great. That's awesome. <laughs> if you're not being challenged by other people, the people that, that, you, that are in your life, uh, maybe you need to start thinking about other folks. <laughs> That's great. That's a love, I love that. All right, we'll, we'll end there. I just thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for your friendship. And, yeah, um, okay. and, uh, and I appreciate you. And if it's okay, I, I, I like to end, I, I'm trying to end these podcasts with being able to say a prayer for, uh, for you. So can I, can I pray for you real quick? Sure. All right. Let's do this. <laughs> Make you feel uncomfortable. <laughs> Dear God, thank you so much for Scott. Thank you so much for who he is. I pray a blessing upon his family, his re uh, relationship with his wonderful wife, Amy, and his awesome kids. And pray you be with him in uh, all of his endeavors with his career and just uh, keep giving him opportunities to be able to love on other people and make an impact on other people's lives. And pray this in Jesus' name and your promise will stand. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Act One Podcast. To learn more about our programs, visit us online at actoneprogram.com.